Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing today? I am James. I am one of the pastors here at Riverview. Let's talk about Damar Hamlin. Uh, when I stood on this stage two weekends ago, I had no idea who he was. Um, my guess is most of you did not either, but most of us do now. Uh, during a, a Monday night football game on January 2nd, the second-year safety from the Buffalo Bills suffered a cardiac arrest and collapsed on the field. The scene was just surreal with hushed fans and players from both teams praying and sobbing as first responders surrounded DeMar and uh, administered CPR for nine minutes. He was taken in uh, critical condition to University of Cincinnati Hospital. He is now out of the hospital. He, he actually was visiting his teammates yesterday as they prepared for their playoff game. He's back in Buffalo. The prognosis is one of cautious optimism. I think it's like one of those, he's got a long way to go, but he's awake and alert. He's posting on social media. He's most importantly, he's alive. Bless God for that. Just a crazy journey for him. The groundswell of attention and support for DeMar Hamlin has been mind-blowing. The news media followed him to the hospital and, and provided around-the-clock updates of his condition for like a week. Um, hashtag DeMar, hashtag Hamlin Strong trended on all the social media platforms. Last year, DeMar Hamlin started a <clears throat> foundation to raise money for kids' toys before this all happened, uh, he had raised $2,500. Today, that fund is pushing toward $10 million. It's been a pretty unbelievable two weeks. Now, why all this attention and support for a previously kind of relatively unknown? I mean, he's a pro athlete, right? But nobody really knew much about this person. I mean, I don't want to diminish at all uh, what happened to him. It's obviously a very terrible and random thing for him to have his heart fail suddenly as it did. Terrifying for his family and friends, I'm sure. But there are over 350,000 cardiac arrests in our country every single year. That's like a thousand every day. And over 90% of those are fatal. In fact, I was just reading an article about a couple days ago about a, a local basketball player. He had a major heart procedure. He's back in the game, was reading about it, but it wasn't like this national worldwide thing uh, with prayer vigils and millions of dollars being donated. Why is his story different? The answer is, is pretty simple. In this country, we are passionate about bordering on obsessed with NFL football. Uh, to be clear, I'm not saying that you, as an individual, are passionate about NFL football. Obviously, not every person cares at the same level about NFL football. My wife and sons care less about professional football than any people I know, okay? And they all know about DeMar Hamlin uh, because of how much passion we collectively have for it. The amount of time, money, and mental and emotional capital we spend on NFL football is Staggering. Of the 100 most watched television programs in this country in 2022, 82 of them were NFL football games. 
Those are three and a half hour programs, right? We wager over 100 billion dollars with a buh, right? Each year on NFL football, 50-ish million of us, that's about 20% of us are in a fantasy football league. It's crazy. Where else but at an athletic event like an NFL football game is it acceptable for 70,000 people to put on numbered Honolulu blue shirts, gather in an arena, close their eyes, put their arms in the air, and sing Sweet Caroline together. I mean, (laughs) that's a Neil Diamond song. And we're like, we're in. Let's do it, right? We are passionate about this. Now, I want to be clear. My point is not to criticize anyone for being a professional sports fan. I lived in Cincinnati for 12 years. I'm a Bengals fan. I was watching the game when DeMar Hamlin uh, collapsed. I'll be watching. The Bengals are playing uh, tonight. There's definitely a danger for any of us to have idolatry in our lives. I'm probably at the top of the list. I am a recovering sportsaholic, right? Um, we can lose perspective and, and idolize athletes and athletics, and, and that's something we should wrestle with for sure. That's not today's sermon. What I want to highlight today is just this. Our capacity to passionately follow, to be invested, is very high. And for you, it may not be professional football. It may be Taylor Swift, or it may be something. I mean, there's all kinds of different things, but we, if, I saw some people, like, it is Taylor Swift, yeah. <laughs> the thing with the tickets for her concert, whoa. Go read about that, that was crazy. We have more time and disposable income and bandwidth than we like to admit. We are capable of devotion. We are willing To sacrifice, it's just for what or for who. And as we move into the second week of this series on the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see a Jesus who asks his followers to be passionately devoted to him and to him alone and then proves that he and he alone is worthy of that devotion. If you have a Bible... Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. We'll also throw the verses up on the screen there for you to follow along with. Uh, You can also find us on your web-enabled device if you want to look, follow along with the messages there. Um, Mark chapter 1, verse 16 is where we'll pick up the story. uh, As he, that's Jesus, passed along the Sea of Galilee. Now again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Whenever a new place is mentioned in the Bible, um, it's a great practice if you have some time to do some digging to find out its significance. This is context for all of Mark's gospel. The Sea of Galilee is actually a 64-mile freshwater lake. It's located here on the northern side of Israel there. Uh, As we zoom in, I'm going to focus just on three key spots, Mount Arbel, Tabga and Capernaum. You see the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee uh, uh, on either end there, fresh water. Mount Arbel is a 600-foot peak that rises along the east coast of the sea. So uh, in May when I, we climbed Mount Arbel, and then this is the view you have of the north corner of the Sea of Galilee when you climb there. Tabga would be here, 
Capernaum further along, but that's the view. Um, you can see a little bit more as Rach rolls this video uh, of just the beauty and the, and the setting there at the Sea of Galilee uh, from Mount Arbel. Mount Arbel was known for being a spot where rabbis and, and Jewish leaders and, and faithful uh, followers of God would go alone to pray and to study God's word. There were caves and little areas for people to have kind of retreat areas there, great retreat spots. This is the view that we had when we went down to Tabga and looked back up. This is Mount Arbel right here, looking from Tabga back up. Tabga means seven springs, and it's a great fishing spot for that reason. You can see here, there's one of the springs emptying in. There's these little freshwater springs that dump into the Sea of Galilee at that spot. Um, Loads of fish there. Um, Up the hill, there's a bunch of churches and memorial sites that are built uh, in, uh, as a commemoration. It's the traditional site where the miracle in Luke 5, where um, Jesus multiplied the fish into the nets of Peter, James, and John. Uh, many scholars believe it would be Tabga or nearby where Jesus called his first disciples, which is what we're going to be looking at here today. Further along the coast, here's an aerial shot of Capernaum. Uh, This is just the part that they've excavated, Sea of Galilee, Tabga, Mount Arbel, that way. You can see over here, the village would have extended farther out. They just haven't excavated the the homes and stuff. Now, there's two structures that dominate this archaeological dig. This down here is the synagogue, okay, Uh, that was in Capernaum. Actually, just the right side is the synagogue. The other side is a school or community center that they attached to the synagogue. Um, synagogue means bring together. And Capernaum means village of comfort. And so I love this picture. This is the place where folks gather together for comfort in the middle of their city. And it's the largest structure. This is just the synagogue. And this is the other building here. It's massive. I've visited uh, six or seven different archaeological ruins of synagogues in different places. This is by far the biggest one. Just to give you an idea, it's about the size of this side of our auditorium. Just the synagogue part, okay? It's about 70 feet and then 80 or 90, that kind of space right there. Um, that the white walls here, that was from post-Jesus. Those were later on, but they dug down all the way to the foundation and the synagogue had the same footprint in the time of Jesus that it has in, it, it's been uncovered. It was really cool. They actually found the original door that goes into that synagogue, which was a little bit like chill up your spine kind of feeling because there's so many stories in the Bible where Jesus and his disciples go in and out of that, that literal, it's like down to the square inch. This was where Jesus was. Capernaum was a very uh, small town of around 1,500 people. Um, it was located right along the main road uh, of the Roman Empire called the Via Maris. A lot of trade, a lot of traffic. There was a Roman garrison nearby. Very, very high traffic, highly kind of um, populated area for that reason. It was also a center for Jewish learning in the first century, which is why such a large synagogue and such a large school there. The discipline of rabbinic studies kind of grew out of that part of the world and was emerging at that time. You would see teachers and students and, and such as part of the, the, uh, the world there. The other dominant structure here. Now, this is um, a modern building, 
This was not there in the time of Jesus. Um, that is uh, a, a church, it's called St. Peter's Church. It is built over the top of the home of Peter's mother-in-law, okay? The, the dig uh, of their home, and, and scholars are pretty unanimous that this was Peter's mother-in-law's home. Was, uh, it was unearthed in 1968, and then in 1990, the Franciscans, this is a church, the middle of the church, they have a glass floor where you can walk up and look down into Peter's mother-in-law's home there. Interesting way to have a church service. I think that uh, Franciscans have built that church. We have an, uh, an older picture. This was before they built the church over the top of I me. Mean, you can't really see much there. Again, a lot of these are buildings that were built on top. This was like a Byzantine church that they had built on top and then everything like that. But the home is kind of in the middle. They're located about two blocks away from the synagogue. Back to our text. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. Simon is the one who becomes Peter. And Andrew, Simon's brother, they were casting a net into the sea. Think Tabga, somewhere nearby that area. For they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus said. He said, Lehakarai, which means come walk after me. And I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and they followed Jesus. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed Jesus. So life in the first century world uh, was centered around faith, family, and the family business. The first and biggest priority for any Jewish person is to love God and obey God and to represent him well in the world. And then their families and their family business was sort of the way they lived that out. Their families were very, very close-knit. When a son got married in their world, they would build an extra room onto their home so that the son and his new wife could move in. You would live there with your brother. Some of you are going, no, no, no. We're not doing that in our family, right? Brothers, sisters, grandma, grandpa, mom and dad, all there in the same home. Totally different paradigm than we kind of tend to operate. And the family business, whether it was making shoes or stone cutting or farming, or in their case, these guys were fishermen, they passed it through the family line. And so Peter and Andrew and John and James are living the life they are supposed to live and then one day, Jesus shows up. He says, hey, Simon, Andy, right? It's time. Let's go. Let's go fish for people together. You're coming with me. And immediately, they left their nets. They left their life. And they went with Jesus. No hesitation they go a little farther. Hey, Zebedee, great day for a fish, right? Good to see you, buddy. Hey, I need to talk with James and John here for a minute. You guys, you're coming with me. Let's go. And immediately they left their dad and the family fishing boat. And dad was there with the hired hands. And again, no hesitation. Now, if you are here today and you're thinking about 
becoming a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're curious, you're new to church, maybe you're returning to church, right? This is gonna give you a pretty clear picture of what's really being asked. If it's not a matter of just kind of being pro-Jesus, like, yeah, Jesus, he's, I'm in on, no, it's not merely believing in Jesus. Those things are part of it. This is gonna be a massive disruption. This is your whole life, right? And you'll never regret it. I mean, people are sometimes surprised that these guys just drop everything to follow Jesus. To me, it would have been more surprising if they didn't. Jesus was about 30 years old by then. He grew up nearby. Galilee's kind of a small region. I think, this is just James's opinion, okay? That they knew exactly who Jesus was. And I think Jesus had been watching. I don't think he's just plucking random dudes here out of the air. Okay, well, just anybody. He chose them strategically. There was something about them. To me, it would be like if you were a student in med school and the most renowned brain surgeon in the world showed up in your classroom one day and she said, hey, you, you, and you, I want you to come study with me for the next three years. You'll shadow me. You'll have full access to everything I do. Of course you say yes to that, right? We're going to the Cleveland Clinic. It's gonna be the best of the best of the very best, right? Your mom and dad, when you call them, they'll be like, go do that. In terms of teachers, but in terms also of people that you could choose to follow, Jesus is unparalleled. Of course you follow him. Following Jesus is, it's part student, it's part apprentice, but it's mostly just you give everything you got. It's like an extended three-year field trip for these guys, right? And so for the next three years, these four men, along with eight others and this group of women, they spent every moment of their lives with Jesus, watching and listening and learning and serving and eating and pooping and praying and laughing and sleep, everything, all of it. They left their families and their family business and their NFL season tickets and their Netflix or whatever else they had, right? Because the first and biggest priority is to love and obey God and represent him in the world and following Jesus was gonna best enable them to do that. And they get right to work here. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum and right away, Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished. I think the they probably is all of the Jewish people that were in the synagogue service at the time. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Now again, it wouldn't, in my opinion, have been a surprise that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. My guess is that he had probably done that before. Um, you know, famous rabbis, Bible teachers, it would have been common for, for guests to be invited to teach. He lived in that area, especially one with Jesus's reputation. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this was his first crack at it. I don't know. But the surprising part, according to the passage, was the authority that Jesus taught with. They were astonished. Now think about this for a second. When was the last time you were astonished by something? 
We get astonished when we see something that we rarely or never see, right? Or we have an experience, we're like, whoa, like it's, right? They had grown accustomed to the teaching of the scribes. The scribes kind of stayed with the liturgy that they were used to. And then Jesus came in and he had this distinct, powerful, insightful, convicting, I mean, it was compelling. It was something they had, they were just like blown away by this guy. They couldn't believe the authority that he spoke with. Now, where did Jesus get that authority? Pastor Noel talked about this a little bit last week. First, if you go back earlier in John 1, remember John the Baptist came proclaiming that Jesus would have more power than I do. He's, I'm not even fit to untie the, the buckle of his sandal, right? Now, John the Baptist was a very renowned teacher in his own right. Remember in Mark last week, it says, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to hear John the Baptist teach. And he testified about the authority of Jesus. He's gonna have power, you guys. Wait till you see this guy. And then when Jesus was baptized, the very spirit of God himself came and affirmed the authority of Jesus. It's the, it's the voice, remember that? While Jesus was baptized, this is my son, listen to him. You talk about authority, God himself has confirmed. And now Jesus starts teaching and his teaching has obvious authority as well. And so his following just begins to grow. Verse 23, just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. They all were amazed. Yes. And so they began to ask one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. They didn't even have YouTube. I bet everybody would have been holding their camera up, right? If that had happened today. Imagine if that happened today. Remember that the devil and his minions are real. Now imagine they have control of this man who wanders into our service here in the middle of my sermon. And he begins shouting. And then imagine Pastor Mark pops up from over here and he rebukes this evil spirit and the guy is convulsing. We would remember that. Like when we went home, we'd be like, I got a tweet about that, right? <laughs> and this commotion happens and this spirit leaves this, this man. And going forward, I imagine that your sense of respect for Pastor Mark's authority might increase a little bit, right? You'd be like, I'm gonna go stand behind him when the evil spirits show up. The authority of Jesus has now been affirmed by John the Baptist, by God himself, by his own teaching, and by God's hated enemy. 
Now, as a, a little bit of an aside, just remember, yes, the devil and his, his minions are indeed real, but in Christ, we have nothing to fear. Because every time one of them shows up in the presence of Jesus, they are scared of him. They know who he is. And in Christ, they flee, right? They know he's the Holy One of God. Verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue... They went into Simon and Andrew's house. This is the one just a couple blocks away there. With James and John, Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her at once. So Jesus went to her, took her by the hand and raised her up. The fever left her and she began to serve them. Uh, I was talking with uh, one of our staffers here, Sarah. We have a little Bible study and she made a great observation this week. She said, the natural response to Jesus changing your life is to serve him. It's interesting. Right away, she pops up and then she, she wants to, to serve. When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. Apparently, a demon possession was maybe more normative to them. I, I, I don't know. It seems like it was uh, just, they weren't surprised by that. The whole town was assembled at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit, permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And so Jesus continues to pad his resume of authority. First, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. I imagine in the first century, being sick with a fever was really risky and scary, right? And once he does that, word spreads about Jesus and the entire town is now surrounding this house in downtown Capernaum. And she's there setting everything up, Peter's mother-in-law, and one by one, people are getting a chance to meet Jesus and be healed and transformed by him Now that is a solid first day following Jesus. Can you imagine the conversations that Andrew and and Peter and James and John had as they were trying to go to sleep that night? Guys, did you see that? Did you hear what he said? What is going on here, right? I'm pretty sure they were all feeling really good about their decision to drop everything and join the Jesus movement after that first day. And we're only through the first half of the first chapter of Mark's account. Think about the testimonials just in this section about Jesus that we have. First of all, Peter, Andrew, James, and John drop everything to follow Jesus. John the Baptist says, I am not worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus. God himself says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Do you have those all on there, Rach? There you go. The synagogue members are astonished and amazed by his authority. The unclean spirits know who he is. They refer to him as the Holy One of God. The whole town then assembles at the door to be healed by Jesus. And let me add two more just giving you a sneak peek as we get deeper into Mark's gospel, the centurion at the cross who says, truly this man is the son of God. And Mary at the empty tomb, she calls Jesus 
Rabboni, which means my savior, my rabbi, my teacher. If we had time, we could open up a microphone here on the stage today and there would be a parade of folks in this room who could come and testify about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in their lives. I know I would have a lot to say. It's clear that Jesus, God's beloved son, right? The Holy One of God has proven himself to be the only one really worthy of following. Of course you follow Jesus. He's the best of the best of the very best. He's proven it. So why don't we? Or why don't we do it with more passion sometimes? If Jesus is in fact the author of life, if he holds the keys to eternity in his hands, why aren't we devoted or more devoted in our commitment to follow him? Why do other people and movements seem to capture so much of our passion and our investment? If DeMar Hamlin has taught us anything in these last two weeks, it's this. Even though we say that life and particularly eternal things are of utmost importance, even though we want our first and biggest priority to be to love and obey God and represent him well in the world, we do tend to live as though the immediate and earthly things are of utmost importance and our first and biggest priority. I mean, I, I, I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm saying we. You know, I spend way more time watching and investing and knowing the players on the Cincinnati Bengals than I do thinking about how can I best share the gospel with my sister who doesn't know Jesus. Just the time commitment in just these different frames is just way, way different. We act like we have all the time in the world, right? We'll get busy following Jesus someday until, until someone or something we care about deeply collapses or we collapse I can't tell you how often the collapse of a person's physical or mental health, the collapse of a marriage or a career or a financial collapse or the threat or the possibility of those kinds of things, that sudden loss of control, it's what snaps a person back into reality and they reset towards an eternal mindset. Often it's our pain, our suffering, our loss, or that kind of crisis that creates the pathway back into us going, man, I said I'm a follower of Jesus. Now I'm going to live like I'm a follower of Jesus. We'll end our time together here this morning with this last verse in Mark 1, 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up went out and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Now, I just wonder about the disciples, by the way. Just a little aside. They wake up the next morning after this first day with Jesus. He's like, he, they're like, he's gone. Oh my gosh. But they found him. We'll talk about that next week. Could it be that one of the reasons why our passion and devotion for Jesus tends to drift away from him and find other landing spots 
is because we neglect this practice of getting away to be alone with him, to find him through prayer and through the wisdom of his word. This is so powerful what happens here. Think about this. This is Jesus who is God. His closeness with his father is established. And yet in the midst of the chaos and distraction that is surrounding him, he carves out this time. He finds a a, a place of solitude where he can be alone and sort of press that reset. If Jesus who had all authority needs undistracted time alone with his father to pray in order to keep that eternal perspective. How much more do we need to find that time ourselves? Can I give you a challenge for this week? Would you find a quiet place and take some time to prayerfully reflect? What am I doing here? What, who am I following? What have been my priorities Get away from the distractions and the chaos that surrounds you and get some time with Jesus to remember he has proven to be the one worthy of our devotion. Don't wait until something or everything collapses to decide to give everything to Jesus. Of course, we would follow him. Are you kidding me? He got his authority directly from God. He beat death on our behalf. He's the best of the best of the very best. Seek him in prayer and through the wisdom of his word. Remember why you follow him. And then, like he said, let's go out together and fish for people. I'm gonna let him have the last word here this morning. We're gonna peek forward again uh, into Mark chapter eight. I'm just gonna read uh, something that he says here at the end of chapter eight, and that'll kind of be our closing prayer And then uh, we'll move forward with some more time of of giving and, and worship through song. This is Mark 8, 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and let yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Amen.